This is WMNF Tampa. True Talk will be a pre-recorded show today, so uh, no calls or anything, so just listen up. Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5. Uh, this is Ahmed uh, Summers out today. Thank you for all our listener supporters who um, supported our show last week uh, during our fun drive. We're actually still short of our goal. If uh, you can, please go to WMNF.org and click um, on Donate. And make sure you select True Talk so you can help us reach our goal. On today's program, um, I'll be speaking to Lisa Vogel. She is the founder and director of a... Um, modest clothing line called Verona. She's also a survivor and advocate of domestic violence. This happens to be Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So we'll be speaking to her about um, domestic violence and also uh, your phone calls. This is True Talk on WMNF. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
Welcome back to True Talk on WMNF 88.5. Um, with Ahmed and Summer. Summer is traveling. And um, that was um, a song by Balti. He's a Tunisian uh, rapper, I guess. It's um, The song is called Ya Lili. Okay. Let me check. Um, yeah, okay, my guest said they couldn't hear me, but I guess now they can. So um, on today's program, t- we're speaking to uh, Lisa Vogel. She is the founder and director of Verona. It's a, um, a modest uh, clothing line. We'll talk to her about what that means. She's also a survivor of domestic violence and an advocate against it. Um, so uh, welcome to True Talk, Lisa. Thank you for having me. What is Verona and um, uh, how did you or how is it different than other clothing lines? Verona is a modest fashion brand and uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm a revert to Islam. Um, I converted in 2011, I think. So it's been about 10 years. Um, when I converted, there was really no clothing for Muslim women, at least readily available. So I launched Verona trying to fill a need for my community. When you say uh, there's no clothing, why do, so, Muslim, do Muslim women have to wear something different? Okay, so (laughs) this is a tricky answer because we're instructed to, our religion teaches us to, but it's not something that's forced upon us. It's our decision. Uh, I chose to wear the hijab and, you know, I was born a Christian. Um, I was actually a very conservative Christian pretty much my whole life. Um, So conservative values, uh, as far as modesty, was already slightly a part of me. Um, So as a Muslim, Yes, our religion teaches us to, but it's our decision whether or not we want to adhere to the hijab or modest clothing. Um, right, but you, but you said there wasn't much out there. What were Muslim wear, women wearing for the last thousand years before you came along? <laughs> well, okay, so Muslim women in America, um, it was a little bit harder to find clothing. So if you were living in a Muslim country, the, the clothing was pretty accessible. Um, but here in America, we had to be very creative with our outfits. And again, it's for women that chose to wear the hijab. So if I was going out shopping, I'd have to find a long sleeve shirt, then maybe something that was modest over it. And then we end up layering and it didn't really even look, um, that appealing. (laughs) So Verona kind of solved that problem where you could be modest and fashionable at the same time and affordable as well. You keep saying the word modest. I mean, um, kind of give us a description of what modest looks like because this is radio. Sure. Well, we like to let our customer define that for themselves. We don't like to say this is what modesty means and take it. So we like to offer a different variety of modest clothing. So maybe something that's a little bit longer and looser, but we try to offer things that might be extra long or maybe something just to the knee because we believe that modesty is a journey um, and we also don't want to force necessarily what I'm, in fact, actually I'll, I'll backtrack. There's another, I have a business partner. I would I would say I dress a little bit more conservatively than she does um, and she'll be very open about it. 
we are two founders of the company, but yet we define modesty slightly differently. So we want to make sure that we give options to our customers and have something extremely loose or maybe something that could be slightly more tight fitting, but then longer at the same time. So we like to be versatile with it and let the customer decide what modesty means to them. Long and loose is not exactly, you know, the everyday wear for, I guess, people... Um, in it can be actually so like our pieces um, it, I, I mean in general not just for Muslims but so does that I guess make Muslim women stand out like what's the whole purpose behind being modest in your clothing I mean, modesty in Islam is, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's very important to us, but internal modesty is more important than the physical modesty. So maybe, um, you know, how we conduct ourselves and, um, or do we conduct ourselves with humility? The internal modesty is actually more important, in my opinion, as a Muslim than necessarily the clothing aspect to it. And one thing that people don't realize about Islam and modesty is that actually uh, Islam um, teaches men, it says in the Quran, for men to be modest, uh, it, it instructs them prior to it does women. And there's a certain dress code that they are supposed to adhere to as well. So, okay, um, if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF. I'm speaking to Lisa Vogel. She's the founder of uh, Verona, which is a modest clothing line for women, right? It's not men and women. Correct, yeah. Okay. Because it'll be easier for men to shop than it was for us. <laughs> right. So um, we're, uh, we're actually want to talk about domestic violence because uh, it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month and you happen to be um, also a survivor and an advocate against domestic violence, but I just wanted to, for listeners that are just kind of learning or hearing for the first time about Muslim clothing, um, uh, modest clothing and what what that all means. Um, but I, I guess the way you, you're saying it's uh, defined differently for different people. It's a journey, religious, spiritual journey, and nobody really tells women um, in Islam, how they should dress, but there's kind of a standard maybe for those. Um, but why did you, why did, and you said there's, you know, differences between you and your partner. Why did you choose, uh, as you mentioned, the more modest route for you? I mean, you didn't grow up that way, did you? No, not at all. And so even more so, I'm kind of your example that women are not forced to wear it. I actually got backlash on being told to take it off. And a lot of women uh, often in America are told to take it off when we're fighting to keep it on. So we're so quick to see like news stories about women, um, you know, with the religious women are fighting in the world to keep it on and also take it off. The true definition of well, liberation. What do you mean by that? Okay, so where are they fighting to keep their hijab? When you say take it off, uh, you're talking about the hijab, which is a headscarf. Where are they fighting to keep it on? Um, I think even Turkey ordered uh, university students to remove it. 
uh, France, they put a ban on the niqab. Um, I would say even right here in America, a lot of women, yes, were obviously allowed to wear it, but how many have faced harassment just over their hijab? I mean, there was a news story that was posted by CARE in uh, Baltimore and an Afghan student was beaten and ripped of her hijab. We are not quick to see these news stories, but women that face harassment all the time just because they want they want to choose how they want to dress. I mean, the liber- liberation is being able to choose how you want to dress, whether it means wearing it or not wearing it. Right, and I think so. you're referring to people fighting to take it off or the option to take it off. Or is, are you t- referring to like what's happening in Iran? Correct, yeah. Right. So oppression is really being forced to do so, whether it's taking it off or, you know, or keeping it on. It's, in- it's interesting that there's this obsession of just... You know about the hijab, whether it should be on or off, and governments are getting involved in how women should wear uh, things. Everyone has an obsession of how women should live their lives. <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems that way, and even in yeah. the context of the scarf, um, for example, in France, you know, they ban, they won't allow the women to. Well, on top of that, they don't allow them to wear uh, the burkini, the burkini, or like a, I guess a Muslim swimsuit into the swimming pools. So where are Muslim women in France who cover up, or where are they supposed to go swimming if they can't go to the beaches or the pools? It's ridiculous. It's just like a, a surfer can wear the same material from head to toe and have a swim cap on, and it's essentially okay. But then a woman puts it on and calls it something different. It's somehow banned. So it's not about the clothing. It's about controlling women on what they should and should not wear. And, you know, honestly, if you really want to talk about oppression, I think that, you know, women are often oppressed in this country by making us feel like we're sex objects and we're nothing but, you know, uh, made to be on billboards uh, selling products and objectifying our bodies. So to me, that's more oppressive than anything. Right. Uh, did that have an impact on you, I guess, growing up, seeing those images um, here and for you to choose to be more modest in your clothing? Um, it, had, it had nothing to do with why I chose to be more modest, because I chose to be more modest simply because um, I'm very strong in my faith. But we cannot sit and deny that these images that we see day in and day out, that it affects little girls and all of us in the way we feel about ourselves. Um, I I remember um, it affecting me as a, as a child and trying to understand the idea of what it means to be beautiful. And it's really honestly shoved on our throat from a very young age. And what is that? What is the message that's shoved down young people? It changes based on media. So now, if you look at just like the media before, like in the 80s, it was very like stick thin and, you know, thin is beautiful. Now it's moved to more like if you have a curvy body, this is more beautiful. And that's how you can, that's how you know how much media really affects the way we perceive things that even so much is how we feel about ourselves. Hmm. Right. Um, this is True Talk on WMNF. I'm speaking to Lisa Vogel. She's the founder of Verona um, Brand, I guess. It's a um, a clothing line, a modest clothing line, predominantly for Muslim women, but anyone can buy it, right? Mm-hmm. Correct, yeah. Um, do you have uh, people who are not Muslims that buy your clothes? Yeah, all the time, actually. Mm. So uh, our clothing is, uh, you know, honestly, if you were just to take away the hijab, um, from the clothing we we offer, you would never really know it's necessarily for a Muslim woman. So we just 
it's fashionable and our definition of modesty. Where did you uh, grow up? I'm from East Lansing, Michigan. So East Lansing, Michigan, and um, big family, small family. What kind of family did you grow up in? Uh, I have a pretty big family. I'm one of six children. Um, it was uh, my father's side was Catholic. My mother's side was Baptist. My mom was not too religious, but I I was a little bit more. Re- I was the religious one of the six kids. Um, Did and you go to church growing up? I did, yeah. Even Bible study and Bible camp. So yeah, I was pretty involved in my faith growing up. And uh, what age, I guess, did you become or Muslim? Or when did you first interact with Islam or Muslims? That's a, okay. So Islam kind of popped into my life slowly. Um, I would say, so the first like Muslim I ever met was in middle school and it wasn't necessarily even an introduction to Islam. It was just for the first time I, I had met a Muslim and his name was Omar. Um, and, but didn't have any knowledge of Islam. Um, uh, my first real introduction to Islam was in college. Um, I met a lot of other Muslim friends um, and I you know, had questions just out of curiosity. Um, but then I moved to Morocco. Um, I took a, a semester off of college and I backpacked through Europe and then I went to Morocco for three months and I taught English at the American Language Center in Tangier. But while I was there, I lived with a Moroccan family. It was a family who's um, someone I met in college and they set it up for me to, to live with their family. Um, and it was a very, very humble family. Um, they didn't have hot water. They didn't have a, a toilet. Really? They didn't have, yeah. I mean, this is <laughs> not, like, this is, that's not common in the no, Muslim world. No, it was a very... Yeah, no, people think of like, but in Morocco, they lived in a very poor neighborhood. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They had where like, you know, the hole in the floor. Was this um, a village somewhere? It was in the Medina, like right in Tangier. Mm-hmm. Um, the the whole house was the almost the equivalent of like two, two of my kitchens or something, something very small. Um, so I went from having every luxury in the world, you know, uh, to um, all of it being taken away and living you know, very, in a very humble household for three months. Um, But I was able to really appreciate the way they lived because they really valued family and um, they were happy. Like they had nearly nothing to survive off of, you know, just their basic necessities. Um, But they were genuinely happy people. Um, It was more of a cultural experience than it was a religious. Um, However, I was able to somewhat live like a Muslim. I wore the hijab and abaya, which is like a loose dress fitting for those of you don't know what an abaya is. I wore it out of respect for the locals. It wasn't anything, you know, anything to do with necessarily learning about Islam, but I learned how Muslims lived. Um, I was there during Ramadan and I was able to experience them fasting from sunrise to sunset and breaking their fast. Um, and just the traditions and daily lives, like wake, waking up for prayer early in the morning and praying five prayers. And I would do it with them. I didn't know what I was saying or understood what I was, the meaning behind it. And I didn't even understand the meaning of hijab at the time. But again, I wore it just out of respect for the, for the locals. So, okay, um, but you didn't become Muslim in Morocco, did you? Not at all, no. So coming back, I um, finished college. I moved to Chicago, went into the corporate world for a little bit. 
um, I decided it wasn't for me and I moved to Florida. Uh, Florida was like a second home to me because my parents had their vacation home uh, in Orlando. So that's why I ended up um, in Orlando. So you grew up well off if your parents had a vacation home. Yeah, alhamdulillah, we were very blessed. So, um, yeah, I was very blessed growing up. So you already familiar um, with Orlando. You moved to Orlando uh, or moved to Florida. What was your goal in doing that? So I decided to go to photography school. I wanted to quit the corporate world and just kind of, you know, follow my dreams. I um, enrolled in uh, Daytona State College, um, a program with UCF. Um, they have a joint program together. And I went through their photography um program i had already you know graduated and got my ba so but now i was pursuing my passion um and i had an assignment um and it was mainly for the purpose of our editing class to edit videos so they gave us a topic that was open-ended just to do a two-minute documentary so i chose to um study why women wear the hijab mm -hmm. i wore it in morocco but I did it out of respect and didn't really understand the meaning behind it. So I really wanted to understand why. So I started uh, interviewing local Muslims in Orlando um, and I was really intrigued by their answers. You know, even though I had this respect for everybody in Morocco and they were such kind people and so hospitable, I still had this, you know, the hijab is oppressive mindset. I still had that in me, um, it, which is ir ironic because I, I wore it and I was, you know, um, and I met such amazing people. I still had this in my mindset. Um, so nonetheless, I went to do my interview and, um, I'd say my eyes were completely opened. Mm. Um, I was so intrigued by Islam um, and I found out that the hijab was in the Bible. Uh, so I decided to research you know, more about Christianity and things that they don't necessarily teach you in Bible school. Um, and then I compared the two and started reading the Quran and I, I read it from cover to cover. I met with local imams I, which is the religious figure for those of you who don't know, it's the equivalent of like a priest. Mm, um, or a pastor. Yeah, or a pastor. Um, and I was watching YouTube videos on Islam and every question um, and every doubt that I had about Christianity, and this is not to be putting my religion on anybody, these are my views. Um, every doubt that I had about Christianity um, was answered with Islam. So, I took my Shahada, which is uh, which means the Declaration of Faith, and that and then I became Muslim on uh, July 29th, two thousand eleven. Wow, um, I guess I'm sure it's a much deeper story that was the <laughs> Cliff Notes version. Basically, um, and it just seems like not only you just joined a religion, but you kind of, you know, went much further to actually uh, now have an impact on what. Uh, Muslims in America are, are wearing. So uh, it's kind of interesting that you're saying that, I mean, yeah, you've only been Muslim for about 11 years, but you're having an impact um, on, I guess, Muslim fashion and um, now also um, getting involved with domestic violence and raising awareness about that within the Muslim community and, and, and also outside um, in introducing you. And now we're going to kind of shift to, you know, something a little bit more uh, serious, not that fashion is not serious, but something maybe more personal. Um, I mentioned that you're a survivor of domestic violence. And um, I mean, not to get into too much detail as much as you're comfortable sharing. Um, 
how did that happen? When did it happen? How did you find yourself in that situation? So just a disclaimer, I made a very conscious decision to be public about it. So I'm an open book, so feel free to ask any question. Mm-hmm. Um, and this may and be triggering, way. by the way, for some people listening out there, but uh, because now we'll be speaking about domestic violence. So I'm sure I'll, um, I'm f- I'll and you'll answer whatever you want to answer. Yeah, but, so, so my question was, you know, now you became Muslim. <laughs> when does this, how did the domestic violence and when did that happen and... So after becoming Muslim, I was Muslim for about a year and a half. Um, I met a man and obviously another Muslim um, and we decided to get married. Um, I got pregnant right away. Um, And, but the abuse, um, it was emotional abuse at first. Um, it, It started almost immediately. Um, you know, prior to marriage and getting to know him, um, he showcased himself as, you know, the perfect Muslim, essentially. And, you know, we may, you know, Muslims might look for slightly different things, but I think we're all looking for the same thing, you know, compatibility, kindness, um, you know, obviously uh, just everything that you look for in a spouse. Um, he was, quote unquote, the perfect man. Um and the emotional abuse started. Um, but you chose, I mean, it was a decision you wanted to marry oh, this person. Sure. It wasn't yeah. like an arranged thing or somebody's forcing you to marry him. No, forced marriage is, is against our religion. So as much as, you know, the media doesn't like to tell that it's against our religion. So 100% my choice. Um, and... Uh, you know, emotional abuse started um, the first sign of emotional abuse and I didn't recognize it at the time. Uh, Abuse is often hard to uh, pinpoint when you're in it um, until you're, you know, outside of it and looking back and and then you see the signs later. Um, But he went and gave away like all of my clothes and said, I don't want you wearing this. Um, And I was really... What about your clothes was... It was actually Pakistani clothes that I had that I wore to weddings because I would wear like traditional Pakistani clothes when I went to weddings. So and Pakistani uh, clothes is not very different than. Uh, no, it was very different than American. Clothing. No, I mean you not know? very different than Indian clothing, right? Yeah, very similar. So you know, saris or you know mm. things like that. Um, so he gave it all away and said, "I don't want you wearing it." Um, you know, and the way abuse works is it doesn't. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't happen overnight usually. Um, it's, it's, it's slowly. And so that's why, you know, when you are in these abusive relationships, it gets harder and harder to get out. And people always pose the question, why didn't you just leave? Um, that's victim blaming at its finest because what they do is they try to eat at you bit by bit and they try to obtain power and control over you. And that's what that's what abuse is. It's power and control. It's just those, it's the two things. And it comes out, whether it's financial abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, it's power and control over their, over their victim. So it started slowly and, you know, then, then it'd be, you know, he'd go into a rage and, and then apologize. But every, each time it happened, um, they break, they, they kind of chip away at your self-confidence and, and self-esteem bit by bit. And then they, they take more and more control over you. But it's a cycle. They, they, they have a rage. Um, then, they, then they apologize, the remorseful stage, and then the honeymoon stage. And that's the cycle of abuse. And then it gets harder and harder to leave often. Um, 
uh, after I gave birth to um, my first child, um, two months um, after the birth was the first time he hit me and he knocked me to the ground and I blacked out. Um, that was, and I just remember crying my eyes out and crying all night long. And then he didn't talk to me for two days as if I had done something to him. But then he comes crying and apologizing. Is um, the start of the physical abuse. And the physical abuse only gets worse. Um, so I finally made a decision to leave. Um, in between, I actually went to women's shelters. Um, I didn't come forth to my family. I was afraid to. Why? I was afraid. I was afraid of reinforcing the stereotype of Muslim men are abusive because people love to claim Muslim men are abusive. And this would give people that much more um, ammo to, to use Islamophobia to their advantage. When the reality is one in three women in America, meaning one in three women listening right now are victims of domestic violence. So I didn't want to reinforce a stereotype when abuse happens within the Muslim community, but it also happens elsewhere. And I and I thought that people would take this as a story and as a means to say, see, it's a Muslim man problem. And that's exact opposite of what I needed to hear, what would have helped me at the moment, and just use my story as a means to further someone's agenda. So despite so being in, you know, suffering this abuse, you still had, I guess, the concern about the wider consequences. I mean, you, but you have to save yourself, right? You have to. I eventually, you know, I eventually worked up the courage um, and I um, waited till he went to work and um, I called friends and let them know what was happening because I kept it a secret for a very long time. There were very few people that knew about it. His family knew, um, and even his, you know, some of his siblings told me I need to leave. Like they were, they were supportive of me. Um, they, they, they didn't want me to be enduring it anymore. Um, but I came clean with my friends. Did you ever call um, the police? I one time tried to text the police. Um, I was locked in the bathroom with me and the children, um, and he was trying to bang the door down, and I was trying to text nine one one. People don't realize that when you call the police or uh, try to get law enforcement involved, it's often when you're most in danger. Um, when you try to put them into accountability, which I do recommend to people to please, you know, call the police. But we, it, it, people are afraid to leave because that's when they're most in danger. When you try to leave because it's the abuser that's slipping their control is is being slipped out of their hands. That's when it's like the victim is often um, in most danger. So you have to be very smart about how you do it uh, when you try to seek help and so that they are not aware that you're seeking help. It sometimes uh, seems that, you know, interesting as you hear all these stories when people that are suffering domestic violence or they're in the middle of a fight and they're being, you know, something and they need to reach out to the police and then the police are not equipped to handle it the right way and they only make things worse because they just show up and start, you know. Um, sometimes the victim is the one that ends up going to jail or the victim ends up, you know, God forbid, dead because of mistakes the police themselves make. So it's, it's almost nowadays people are just worried, you know, is this, should I call the police? Are they going to actually help or make matters worse? So 
um, I, you know, yeah, it makes you think, um, how do you plan ahead? But oftentimes you hear people like that are in violent situations and are in domestic, you know, are, are victims of domestic violence. And you wonder why can't they just leave? And it just never made sense, makes sense to me. But these people are sure they, you know, they say that it's so difficult. It's not that easy. It's not that easy at all. Why? In fact, I would say that often victims sometimes question after they leave and say, oh my gosh, is it easier if I just go back? Um, I, I certainly don't want anyone to be discouraged to leave. I just don't want to paint a rosy picture. I, in fact, I want to encourage people to leave. But understand that when we're saying this, um, it's not a rosy picture once you leave. In fact, they use the court system try, to try to re-traumatize you. If you have children, they use the children to um, you know, be pawns to get at you. They'll withhold the children for you. Um, you have to have an enormous amount of um, an, an enormous amount of evidence to to even like try to protect yourself. And when you're in the middle of abuse, you're not sitting there thinking about documentation. You know what I mean? Um, right. So it, people are always like, "Why? Why didn't you just leave?" Think about it. The man maybe had had the financial control. You now have to figure out how to take care of two children while someone's harassing you. You're scared for your life. You don't know what they're gonna do. Now, this is, I'm absolutely encouraging women to leave abusive marriages. Absolutely. I don't want to say it's a rosy picture, but I can say it's worth it in the end. It absolutely is so worth it. Once you cross that hump and you have, um, and you have peace in your life, it is so worth it to, but I don't want to pretend and say, once you leave, you're done, you're fine. No, you will have a battle ahead of you, but in the end, it's worth it. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF. I'm speaking to Lisa Vogel. She's the founder of Verona. It's a modest clothing line. She's also a um, Muslim convert or revert to Islam. She's originally from um, Lansing, East Lansing, Michigan, and now runs her clothing line. And she is a uh, survivor and an advocate uh, against survivor of domestic violence and an advocate against domestic violence and it's domestic violence awareness month that's why we're speaking to her um, you're saying to leave but have a plan put a plan in place um, you know think ahead plan your e you know exit um, is that what you're saying Yes, sometimes it doesn't always work like that. Your if your life is more important than your plan. So sometimes you just have to leave, you and the children, yes. If you have the ability to plan, I recommend planning. Get Only speak to people you really trust. Um, utilize resources. Do not be too prideful to where like we're not, you know, I, I, I don't want to reach out to this resource. That's why it's there. You know, I came from an affluent family, but yet I was in a woman's shelter. Like we have got to put our pride aside and say, I need help and it's okay to seek help. This is why the resources are there. Um, build up your resume to start you know, submitting for job applications, try to get your financial, um, you know, situation in order as best as you can. And again, I always want to put the disclaimer, you're, you'll never be 100% prepared. You plan to the best of your ability, but sometimes you just have to leave. Can um, these people be rehabilitated, the violent ones? Is there counseling options? Is there a way to fix things? Or as soon as, you know, somebody lays their hand on... Uh, 
their spouse, they should start making plans to leave. Um, When do you decide? Because sometimes it seems like they wait too long and too much damage is done. And, yeah, you, you know, they miss so many red flags, so many, you know. So when is the right time to actually start this planning? I think that people should seek help. If, if the partner who is abusive is willing to seek help, uh, absolutely, like, seek seek help immediately. Um, that is a very difficult question because I was always under the impression, okay, can people change? I don't know. Um, I believe people can change and be rehabilitated a lot, but I do think um, I think that if they are seeking help because um, they want to keep you, um, then no, they will not change. I think that if they are seeking you say help, because- to want to keep you, what do you mean? If they're using the the therapy and counseling to say, okay, all right, don't leave, but I'll go get help. They're not doing it for the right reasons. They're not admitting they have a problem. They're doing it just to keep you there in the marriage. Um, Why do they want to keep you in the marriage? Because it's it's control. They want to have you in their control. That's what abuse is, power and control. They want to have you in in their possession. Um, They don't want you on your own. They don't want you to have freedom. They don't want you to be, you know, thriving. And um, they want you to need them financially, emotionally, physically. They want you to need them. Um, Do they want you it, to love them? I mean, is, there, is is love involved at all in any of this? Not a healthy love. Certainly not a healthy love because uh, like you then, like for instance, my self-esteem was, was so low in the marriage that I felt that I could not live without him. They, 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 change, they, they change your entire way of thinking. I would... I would, after he would beat me up or knock me to the ground, he'd lock himself in the door, like behind another room, and I'd be running to him apologizing for what I did. They completely brainwash you. And this is why, like, when we're thinking about looking at other um, victims in, in abusive relationships, we look at it with a clear, healthy mind, and we're thinking, this is so obvious to leave. Right. But the person in it and the person who's a victim, they're not in a healthy state of mind. They've been completely brainwashed to believe that they need their abuser mentally, emotionally. They cannot survive without them. You know, I'm an, I mean, I had probably more education than him, and yet I was being told that I couldn't survive without him. I'd never, I'd never remarry. But obviously, like my worth is not determined based on my relationship status. But these are the things that he would feed me day in and day out. And when you are told something over and over again repeatedly, you start to believe it. You start to believe that you're not worth anything. You start to believe that, you know, you can't live without them financially. You'll never make it without them. Did you reach out to uh, the mosque, which is, I guess, the Muslim church or the, you know, or Muslims, uh, Muslim house of worship or community center uh, to, to get help? What was the reaction? Or did you reach out to the imam, which is like the pastor? Yes, I reached out to a few um, imams in uh, Dallas where we were living at the time. Um, they, of course, condoned it. Condoned or uh, condemned? Condemned, sorry. Okay, they were against uh, it. <laughs> yes, they were against it, excuse okay. me. I don't want to misspeak. I don't want to misspeak on that. Um, but... 
I don't feel that they did enough. Did they I talk wanna, to him? Did they uh, yes. intervene? What happened? Okay. There is an organization that I fully support. It's called Peaceful Families Project. And it's about training imams on how to handle this, how to handle these situations. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very tricky. I don't blame them for not understanding. When you say them, who do you mean? Imams. I do believe that we could be way more for way more aggressive about standing up for victims. Um, I don't believe that they were, they were, they, they stood up enough. They were very quick to say how wrong it was, but an abuser is not going to stop what they're doing unless they have accountability. That's the reality. Um, what is so it? Nothing- what is an acceptable accountability? That would actually change things. It should be that the cops will be called on him if he lays a hand on me again. You know what I mean? There should be real accountability. Abusers are only afraid of accountability, and that's the only thing that will stop them. Otherwise, they are not afraid of people that just say, you know, a slap on the wrist. Don't do this again. They they know it's wrong. They know they're not. They don't care though. What is they the religion? Care. What does the religion itself uh, say about abusive uh, spouses? Our religion is so, like, it, it, it protects women to, for even, they're not even supposed to be paying a dime in the household. Like, they, they're, the husband's not even supposed to be raising their voice at, the, at, at, at their spouse. The mother is, there's a hadith, which is a teachings and sayings of our prophet, is that the mother comes three times before the father. This is how much they protect and value women. The, you know, we have such, um, you know, religious figures to look up to like Khadija, who was the prophet's wife. She was older, a businesswoman. She was independent. She was his boss, essentially. Like they value independent women in our religion and they value just women in general so much so that we are, that men are supposed to be our protectors and our providers while we can be out there working for our own career, but yet we get to keep all the money. So it, it values women in our religion. What my ex did is completely opposite of what Islam teaches. This the media will not tell you about. It will not tell you how much they value women. It won't tell you this this um, this part of our religion. But clearly, it wasn't. You know, just like anybody, he's human. He's gonna choose to follow it or not. And this isn't a religious issue. This is a humanity. This is a humanity issue. Would just you, like. Just like. Go ahead. Just like non-Muslims that abuse, um, you know, their spouses. This is a humanity issue. Uh, gender-based violence, you know, violence against women is a global issue. And in America, one in three women are victims of domestic violence. Men are too. And I, I, do, I do fight against abuse in general. So men are victims of abuse as well. And that has to be spoken about too. When should, uh, I guess, somebody is, uh, that's listening to this now and... You know they're experiencing some sort of abuse, whether it's emotional uh, or physical. Uh, what's your advice to them? Seek help immediately. Where do, do they seek help? Um, local resources. Um, you know, even for Orlando, there's Harbor House right in or- Orlando. I don't know Tampa, but I'm sure there's the equivalent. Um, even being not being afraid to call the hotline and they give you local resources if the, if you need to get to a transitional home or a shelter find legal help um 
reach out to personal friends that you really trust that can help create a plan for you, that can help maybe even financially move you into a new home or find a new job to, to rebuild your life, uh, to find an attorney to, you know, to um, take your extra court, you know, if there's children involved. Um, it, it is a process where there's a lot of moving parts. You know, you have to seek legal, you have to look for your source of income, where are you gonna live? It is a lot, but you can't do it on your own and you can't be afraid to ask for help. Um, just, I, I need to just interrupt here because there's breaking news happening out of Florida. Uh, the jury rejects the death penalty for the shooter, um, um, Cruz, who was the, the shooter of the 2018 massacre that left 17 dead at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The decision means um, he will get life in prison when sentenced by the judge. The sentencing will be November 1st. So um, the Parkland High School uh, shooter, mass shooter, I believe his last name was Cruz. Um, the jury rejects the death penalty, so which means he'll get life in prison. Sorry for the interruption. Um, you know, they sent that over to to announce uh, more on that when uh, later on in the day. I'm sure you'll hear about it during the NPR news, uh, etc. Uh, one, are you afraid of uh, your ex? And were you afraid to speak out how long after you left him? Um, and, you know, how much later did you actually go public with this? And why did you go public? I used to be afraid of my ex. Um, but you know, one of my friends who's like a DV, um, advocate as well, she DV, said, domestic violence, domestic violence. Yeah. She's like, you're standing in your power. Um, now we have a, a fairly civil relationship where we communicate. Um, and he's actually changed quite a bit, um, for the better. Um, he still has very abusive traits, but, um, he has improved quite a bit. Um, but is that just, is that because you went public? He's afraid now that you'll. I don't know his rationale for changing, um, but it's been about eight years since I've left. Um, it, you know, that's between him and God as to why he decided to start changing. I'm I'm thankful he has started to change. Um, I'm thankful that he's improved um, and learned to be a better human being. Um, but. After the marriage, um, I I felt like I had more trauma than in the marriage because of um, not now, but you know for several years afterwards. But because of how much he harassed me, um, you mean after they, you left, he was harassing after, you? Yeah, and they used the children like um, as means to to control you. Um, and there were often times where I thought. Is it just easier to go back? You know, you start questioning your decisions. Like they want, they absolutely do not want to see you thrive and live on your own. Um, I'm so thankful that I pushed through because now I live a peaceful life. I don't have anyone screaming in my ear or, you know, I, I suffered massive anxiety and massive PTSD uh, where I would just be, you know, doing daily activities and I'd have flashbacks of my head getting banged in the wall. Um, it, it took years to, to heal, you know, but why I decided to speak out, it was years afterwards. 
I, um, my brand was like all over the news. And when I mean actually globally, um, it was in, you know, CNN, Fox News, New York Times, Glamour, Vogue, uh, now this, NPR, like I was getting featured in my brand everywhere. And you're talking about uh, Verona, your clothing. Verona, right. And no one realized that in behind the scenes, I'm living this like horrible, like dealing with abuse every day and harassment. And um, if I were to see his name pop up on the phone, I'd be shaking. And I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I, this is a responsibility now where I feel that I have to speak out to hopefully make change. Because especially where abuse doesn't happen more in the Muslim community, but what was a problem was the that we weren't speaking about it. We were trying to pretend, no, our religion is better, therefore it doesn't happen. And that's not the reality. The reality is, is abuse happens just as much in our community as it does for the one in three women in America. So I felt that I needed to speak out mainly for our Muslim community to say, listen, this happened to me. It happens to many other women and men. We need to stop pretending it doesn't happen. If anything, I hope that my story can be one that will help other women to say, you're not alone. And that's why I decided to go public. And that was in, I think, 2017 or 2018 when I went public with my story. Somebody sent an email saying there's always two sides to a story. I wonder what his version will be. I mean, you I mean, could ask. it seems insen- <laughs> it could be come across obviously as insensitive, but um, that's yeah. very insensitive. We we are so quick to. But you uh, do, but, yeah. but it, I read it. I mean, I had a choice. I could have not read it, but does it? Were you afraid of it's these types of lot. responses? Where I mean, is that why people don't go public because they always question? Exactly, exactly. That it, I would say, thank you for the question. Because it gives me an opportunity to say, you are the reason why women do not leave with this question right here. You doubted and and basically are making other women feel all the shame that they have to endure and be re-traumatized to have to prove to a stranger somehow my story, I have to prove to you of what I went through. It's an entitlement to its finest. I think one thing one thing that um, also sets you apart is uh, in in reading in reading all the information. You never actually mention or say your ex's name that you know claimed that you say did this abuse. So you're not actually trying to smear him necessarily. You're trying to raise awareness about domestic violence, and I think that even adds not that you need it even more credibility to your story because I mean, what benefit are you deriving? from, you know, raising awareness about this. I would, yeah, in continuing on with that email, I would say that um, who wants to put themselves through this? Just ask yourself that. Who wants to sit and be this vulnerable and share such traumatic stories? What good does it, you know, do? Okay, that's one. Number two, yes, I've actually never named him and I will forever keep his name private. The ones that do know him and already knew of uh, him personally, 
they were aware of the abuse and the one or two individuals that didn't, so be it. I, it's sad that they're more concerned about what's their side of the story than helping the victim. If we retrain our thoughts and say, how can I help you? What can I do to help? Now we have good intentions as another human being. I just can't imagine being a human being that someone says, this happened to me. And I'd be like, I don't believe you. Let me talk to the other person. Where's the evidence? Yeah, a human being with humanity would say, what can I do to help you? that, That question is exactly the question I'm so thankful they asked. Because it gives me an opportunity, and I bet you it was a Muslim, unfortunately. This is the stigma that we face within our community. Um, This is the reason why we need to keep speaking out. Because of the shame that they put on victims. Why do they do that? This is this is a backwards mentality. And I, and again, it happens outside the Muslim community as well. But this is what I want to address. This was the reason why I wanted to speak out. To change the stigma. Because... So often the shame is put on the victim. It's like, how dare you speak about what he did versus how dare he did what he did. It's a completely way of different way of thinking about it. And, you know, I, Trevor Noah actually spoke about it um, on the Daily Show one time about his mother. And he like said something that seems so obvious, but you, you think about it. Why does the victim feel any ounce of shame? The perpetrator should feel the shame. I shouldn't feel an ounce of shame for what he did to me. Yeah, and I agree with you. You shouldn't, and we're proud of you that you're raising awareness. Uh, I think this is an important topic. Um, Like you said, uh, oftentimes these people see it as taboo or not wanting to air dirty laundry. But if somebody's getting beat up or somebody's facing violence or... um, emotional abuse uh, they need help and unless we speak about it it you know it's kind of brushed aside so um, I think it's a good thing that you're raising uh, this issue and um, thank you for being on the show to talk about this and um, again this is domestic violence awareness month if somebody um, knows someone in that situation we have about 30 seconds or um, that's facing abuse what should they do um, again, seek help. Go to people that you really trust and that, that can be your support system to help create a plan and create a plan to get out. Uh, that's Lisa Vogel. She is the founder of Verona um, Clothing Line. Um, they're on the internet and is also a survivor of domestic violence and an advocate against it. Thank you for being on, uh, on True Thank Talk. Thank you so much for using the, your platform for awareness. I appreciate it. Okay, after this, there'll be NPR News and um, more programming from True Talk, I mean, from WMNF, WMNF Tampa. Have a great weekend and see you same place, uh, same time next Thursday at 11 o'clock. Take care. This is WMNF Tampa, 88.5 on the left side of your dial.